Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, empowering filmmaking entrepreneurs. Hey, welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. Yes, this is the podcast where we empower you, the filmmaking entrepreneur. And a great way to get started is to get the book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion while doing it. It's available in paperback, Kindle ebook, as well as an audiobook. And in fact, you can get the audiobook for free when you go to survivetheimplosion.com. That's survivetheimplosion.com. Hey, Ron Newcomb here with the Film Trooper Podcast. Today, I am lucky enough to have Glass House Distribution. I got the whole team on the house. Uh, one of my former uh, associates and friend, Tom Malloy, who is a filmmaker in his own right and a producer. Him and I connected some years ago after he wrote an epic book on film financing, and I flew him into D.C. to do some uh training and speaking. We've now circled it back up. He's now in distribution in that lane. And so I wanted to bring to all the film troopers out there through an entrepreneurial lens of let's try to figure out this whole distribution thing from sales agents uh, to what's next. We're going to try to have that conversation looking through that lens because technology is always making us change. So let's just uh, start right out the gate with um, maybe just doing a round robin introducing yourself and just talking briefly about a little bit about your filmmaking journey and how you ended up at Glasshouse Distribution. Tom, did you want to go first? Sure, sure. Um, well, the whole filmmaking journey, I wouldn't want to take up an hour and a half yeah. <laughs> doing that. So I'll, I'll just kind of say that, you know, I've been making films for a while now. And uh, I think I'm at my 15th movie, producing number 16 in November. And, uh, you know, so I still am actively producing uh, films and the Glasshouse distribution came to me through um, a Wall Street investor named Brian Glass. And so that's where the glass comes from. But uh, he had he approached me and said that he felt that distribution was the safest kind of play in the movie business, which it is, and uh, wanted me to start the distribution company. And I said, uh, well, the only thing I, I don't want to screw filmmakers like that's been happening to me all these years. <laughs> so that's my only caveat. And uh you know, the Glass House name has, has kind of already evolved into this thing where his name is Brian Glass, but Glass House means like transparency. You can kind of see in, see everything that's going on. And so um, uh, the filmmaking is separate from the distribution. I usually, um, across the boards, I haven't distributed anything I made, kind of keep it separate. And, uh, and then brought in uh, Rob and Michelle. So I'll let them uh, introduce themselves. Yeah, Michelle, how about you? Yeah, um, not not too far different. I I'm originally a producer. I've produced about ten films, and um, in the journey of, of producing, trying to see, you know, how to get my film out there, I started learning about distribution, just attending film markets and um, festivals. And over that time, next thing I knew, I was an assistant, and then I was doing acquisitions and I was doing sales. So it just organically grew to now doing distribution. I still produce films. I still love it, but I love the distribution side as well. And the great thing about distribution is that as a filmmaker, it keeps me on top of things. It keeps me in the know. So when I'm producing a movie, I can put on my distribution hat and say, okay, this is good casting. This is not good, a good genre. This is a good genre and so on. So they go so hand in hand and they're so dependent on each other. So I just feel I, I am fortunate to learn from the best of both worlds. Yeah, no, that sounds like a similar tale and, and something that we would all probably love to, to know is dip over into to both. Rob, how about you? 
Yeah, um, so uh, I won't bore you with all of my details, but uh, the first 10 years of my career um, was on the East Coast and kind of firmly as a producer, director, and editor um, with companies like uh, Discovery, um, doing stuff for the National Guard and Cerebellum. When I came to L.A. about 10, 11 years ago, um, the idea was as I transitioned into features, um, coupling the creative with also uh, a deep understanding on the business side, which, you know, encompassed kind of finance, distribution, sales, and all of those things. Uh, the bulk of my experience in that effort was at a company called Indomitable Entertainment, where I was able to dip my toe into kind of the sales and distribution side. You know, uh, each of us as executives of the company would executive produce and represent films. And what that meant was sourcing and structuring finance, sourcing and negotiating distribution, and occasionally individual territory sales as we put films together. Um, and then Tom and I um, reconnected um, uh, maybe a year and a half ago or so, and uh, he was just getting going with this uh, company. It sounded fantastic, and so we were, started working on this together last year. Now I know. And I just want to jump in there, Ron, and say sure. it's also Rob's birthday today. It's Rob's birthday, so hey, happy hey. birthday, Rob! <laughs> nice, happy birthday, Rob! Nice, thank you. Everybody's gonna be saying happy birthday in the future. See, so look at you, Rob. Nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, thank, thanks for spending your time with us for sure. So, I love that that you know, with true indie fire and spirit, that you also see through the lens of that filmmaking entrepreneur from the indie perspective. So you can certainly see through the lens of which. Uh, we see it through. So there's a lot of miscommunication, it seems to me, or maybe there's not a lot of difference, but can you guys maybe straighten us out a little bit on the differences between what is a distributor and what is a sales agent? I hear a lot of agents calling themselves distributors and vice versa. So help me with that. Help me try to understand that. Um, this is Rob. I can jump in on that if you want, guys. Sure. Go for it. Um, I mean, and, and these guys may have different varying definitions, but to me, the, the simplest definition is a distributor is kind of the conduit to the end user. And so they are taking a project and getting it to an audience via a variety of different channels, be them in the theaters, be them through digital platforms or home entertainment and so forth. Um, a sales agent is someone who has a network of relationships with those distributors, both in their own country of origin as well as all the international territories. Sometimes a sales agent also functions as a distributor within their country of origin, but that's kind of the key difference. Distributors are often also called buyers. Okay, that's that's a good differentiating factor there. Uh, kind of buyer and, and agent. So. If, you know, in today's times, a, a lot of filmmakers kind of see themselves with aggregators and being able to get on and, and stream their own stuff, answer the question for our audience of why would a filmmaker need a sales agent in today's times? You know, I'll jump in there. This is Tom. Um, it, I think the key is, well, first off, a lot of these aggregation sites that are out there, you know, that, that nowadays really anybody can get their title on VOD. But uh, the issue there is what happens to the title once it's up there, you know, because there's so much content up there. So marketing is a big thing. And, you know, there's a cost associated. It's not an unbearable cost. Um, so a, a filmmaker can pay and get that. But then it's just sitting there. And in a distributor, obviously, we, you know, if we're going to distribute, which we do uh, domestically to the U.S., um, 
we're going to front those costs and then we're going to market the titles and try to drive traffic to those titles. Um, internationally, we're, we're a sales agent. We're, we going, we're going to different buyers in the country. I, I don't see how um, a filmmaker could do that and in a cost-effective way, like meaning mm -hmm. they go to you know one of the markets or something like that, and and then try to kind of walk around and sell it to the territory. They don't have the relationships. Um, I mean, this AFM is my twelfth AFM that I'm going to. Nine years as a filmmaker, two as a distributor. This will be the twelfth as a, uh, yeah, but the third as a distributor and the twelfth for me. Uh, can five years um, when I you know Michelle's can is probably thir 12, 13 years. I don't speak for her. She's been doing that. Rob, same kind of thing uh, with uh, comparable to me, five or six years in can and, um, you know, 10 years of AFM. So these are relationships we've built. I always used to say AFM is like a high school reunion for me. So like you go back and you see all these people and that's that's what you get with a sales agent is that relationships, which is the everything in this business. That's we're going to be able to sell to buyers. And that's, you know, and I, again, I don't even know uh, for a filmmaker, how they're just going to kind of develop those relationships. So especially for the international side, that's why they need a sales agent. Uh, Ron, one of the things that I, I tell personal relationships of filmmakers when they say, oh, Michelle, do we really need a sales agent? You know, I mean, I could do this through, you know, this source or that source and just self-distribute. And I said, yeah, you, you know, when you go to court, you don't really need an attorney, but do you want to go there with an attorney or do you not want to go there with an attorney? So it's kind of the same question. You don't need an attorney, but you probably are better off if you have one. And if you've already invested the time and money into making the film, then, you know, you want to do your best with it. So leave it to the people, as Tom and Rob are saying, who've built the crea uh, the relationships. And, you know, for me, I, I actually, I, I can't really count at this point, but I think it's 15 years in can, 14 years in AFM. I'm not even sure, but the relationships that I have, people now know who they trust, who they don't trust. So when I have a film a filmmaker's film to present, there's a, a level of credibility that we've established that saves a filmmaker from having to do that themselves if they wanted to try to self-distribute. So it's a big advantage. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate what everybody was saying there. There's certainly one of the key things that I picked up was it, you can get it on a platform these days. It is truly the eyeballs and the marketing. So I, I'm grateful that you guys are, you know, obviously see the same thing and understand that the differentiating factor is is just that is the ability and to have the resources and the know-how to do that. And then another thing that I, Jonathan Wolf, who's the managing director of AFM, and I recently interviewed, spoke about a producer. There's three different kinds basically in his mind. There's kind of the line producer, the creative or artistic producer, and then there's the sales producer. And never are you an expert in all three. You might be in two, but you're likely just one. And a lot of filmmakers miss that, that they think that they can just get out there and sell it themselves and they don't need someone doing that. There's a aggregator for international sales and I won't say their name because I've, I, I tried, I dabbled it in a little bit and I got to tell you, I wasn't getting any sales. I went to a sales agent and boom, I, I got sales, same product. And yet I wasn't able to do it in this new kind of tech age and mm -hmm. yet with the right sales agent, because of, to your point, Tom, relationships, uh, they were able to make the sale. So that, that really is kind of the key factor is a sales agent is probably as good as their Rolodex. And you guys have been doing it a long time. So, um, so I can appreciate that. It is truly relationships. So when you guys are going to the markets, 
Can you give a, maybe a, a little insight about what makes a film sellable and maybe even speak specifically to uh, certain genres that uh, either your company lean towards or, or what you hear buyers may be asking for? Um, yeah. So maybe talk to that. You know, I think Michelle has always a good take on this. You want to go with that one, Michelle? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, over over the years, the great thing about, you know, putting your film uh, through a sales company is that the sales company is going to multiple markets, which means we are um, interacting with multiple buyers from multiple territories. And it keeps us in the know of what they need. And there are certain questions that we're asked right up front when we're presenting a project. Who's your cast? Who's your director? What's the genre? And so when I've discussed with filmmakers what makes a film sellable, there are certain elements that you want to try to back your project into, and that's you know having a, a good genre. And if, if you're going to have, for example, if you're going to have a low-budget film, uh, meaning under, let's say, under $500,000, so you can only afford so much, you want to ask yourself, well, what genre is going to you know, sell better. And it's, it's very hard for a filmmaker to put that, that sales mentality on, because like you said, there's three types of producers or, or more. And so they just get excited about the creative. But if you really get involved with your sales companies ahead of time and start, you know, just as people are listening now, you, you start to uh, create the films with that in mind and you think to yourself, okay, well, they've made it clear that a drama without big cast is not going to be an easy sell. So let's pick a genre that we could still do at low budget and or we don't need cast extremely like horror perhaps and then we have a higher chance of selling. So cast, director, genre are going to be the three major elements on making a film sellable. It's not always the case. You can option a bestseller. I mean, there's so many different uh, other options, but the, the upfront most common are those elements. And um, again, like I'm saying, if, if, if you have a low budget, then you want to avoid something like a drama. If you could do a sci-fi uh, you know, that's really good because that, that transfers all around. Comedy is a little bit hard because it may not translate in, in the foreign territories. So those are the things that um, the relationship between the filmmaker and the sales company, that when they, they start creating that relationship, they start to learn that and they, they go in making their film, you know, with a more sellable uh, aspect to it. So as, as a way to kind of even follow up with that, let's say I have a film and I'm in pre-production. I haven't shot yet. Um, so kind of two questions. Is there a budget range for an indie filmmaker that I should try to stay within that will likely help my chances? It's always going to be hard, but to kind of break even. In other words, you know, Ron, you're an indie filmmaker at this point, don't do a film over 1.5 million. Do it, you know, under because the sellability, the break-even factor is so hard uh, with that. Or, you know, is it even less than that? And then second, let's say I come to you before you go to the market and I say, hey, I'm interested in potentially doing some pre-sales and I have the ability to get this actor. Can I tell you who the actor is and you kind of help me gauge whether or not that actor is bankable, if you will? Absolutely. Actually, the question you asked, that's that that's Tom's question because he is great at answering that on the budget of the film. I've heard him do that in uh, lectures. So, Tom, do you want to go with that one? 
Well, yeah, you know, I, I guess what I would say is that so much of it depends on the, those factors, you know, the, the cast and the, the, the director and the genre. So there's no, to answer your question specifically, Ron, there's no steadfast rule where you could say, well, you don't want to go over 1.5. It's like, mm-hmm. well, do you have Matthew McConaughey in the movie? You know, like that's right, it. Right. So there's always those things um, that that factor in. So there's no there's no steadfast rule. It's just obviously things have changed. When back in, you know, the early 2000s, you could make a six billion dollar Ray Liotta movie, you know, and, and, and sell ten million dollars. You know, if you do that today, you're going to, you know, six million dollar Ray Liotta movie is going to sell for, you know, one one million maybe, you know. And so um, it, it, there's no rule um, except that cast sells, especially internationally, and some genres sell more than others. You know, mm-hmm. Michelle and Rob and I get countless filmmakers approaching us at AFM, walking into our office and saying, you know, I have a drama with no names. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and they said it's the no-name drama. And then, you know, I I also laugh because I said, well, how much did you spend on it? And they said, well, about a million, <laughs> which which <laughs> means they're either, they're either lying or right. they're, they're insane. You know what I mean? Like, right. that, which is, I mean, for a million bucks, you better be able to get some some big name stars, in, especially these days. So uh, there's no hard pass rule. It's just that some genres, you know, sell better than others, the ones that can play internationally. You know, it's a story about um, two roommates, you know, at a college that are gay in Ohio. You know, is that going to play in Spain? Is that going to play in, you know, is that going to play in anywhere else besides, you know, Ohio, San Francisco, and, the you know, a couple of the territories in the U.S.? It, it, so it's it's so specific versus, like, an action movie or a sci-fi or a horror that could play really anywhere. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. If I could just uh, piggyback Please. off of what the, those guys just said. So, you know, just to kind of underscore, you know, what Tom and Michelle alluded to, you know, obviously cast and genre and some of those things are kind of front and center as to the components that make your film sellable. To the extent that maybe you don't have the level of cast you want or maybe you're making something that's unique and special and it doesn't kind of fit within a box of a genre or isn't one of the most kind of bankable genres, there are other elements that can help kind of your your film rise above the fray, and they can be a variety of things. I mean, you, you can have something that's concept-driven. You can have something that maybe isn't a home run from a genre perspective, but you've taken it on a festival run, and it started to garner, you know, attention through awards and accolades, whereby, you know, it generates a buzz. Um, and then there's other, there's other things that are kind of, you know, if it's a subject that's kind of in today's headlines or in the, the general zeitgeist, you know, that may have some relevance. Um, so, and of course, there's IP-driven stuff that we see, especially through kind of tentpole releases. So there, there are other factors that can contribute to a film being successful, but those are things that you have to kind of look at a little bit more on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, so um, let me ask you, you had mentioned film festivals. How, you know, film festivals, there's a gazillion of them these days, it seems like, and they can get expensive, especially if not only are you submitting, but then you're going to attend and maybe even do your cast and crew. How much do they, do they matter? Does that help you sell the film? As far as film festivals go, does it help you sell the film? Is that what you're asking? Exactly. Yeah. So in other words, should, should a filmmaker be spending their time really trying to get into festivals or even delaying ah. distribution because they're in hopes that, you know, this particular festival is going to pick it up. 
Well, the problem is, you know, the, there's only like five or eight festivals that mean something for uh, distribution. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. Tri it's like I can name them. Toronto, Sundance, Cannes. Uh, Berlin, you know, um, Slamdance, uh, Telluride, Tribeca. Tribeca. That's, you know, that's about it. I mean, I, I might have missed one or two there, but that's about it. Um, and so those are the ones where if you get in, that's that's going to be big for you. And, and you're going to, you know, you're going to have a much easier time selling your film. The key is, do you wait a whole year? Because those are all at different times, you know, at South by Southwest. That's one that I forgot. Um, you know, do you wait a whole year to do that and get rejections from all? And then, you know, then you're back at square one. Or do you kind of go for a couple of the big ones, um, which are very tough to get into because, you know, and it's nothing to do with the quality of somebody's film. A lot of times it has to do with the stars. And, you know, it's very tough to compete when Woody Allen is premiering his movie, at, you know, at the Cannes Festival. Yeah. That's very tough for, you know, filmmaker A to compete. But, you know, so do you do that? You maybe try a couple of them and then the rest of it, it's not for sales. You know, it's 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 sometimes better. You know, like Rob said, you get those laurels on the box. You win some awards that'll help for sales. That'll help you get a distributor. Um, but you, you're probably not going to get like a bidding war or anything like that. The old Sundance stories. Um, so I would say it helps for maybe the bit, you know, the box cover, if there is an actual DVD box cover, it helps with a BOD, you know, to, to say, you know, like the, the normal person on the street is not going to know the size of the festival, you know, and they, mm -hmm. they're not going to know oh, this one is more prestigious than the others. They just see 10 laurels that say best picture at so-and-so festival. Well, then they're going to say, oh, you know, so that helps sell. Uh -huh. But, um, really it's a lot of times exposure. It's great for the filmmakers. That's a thing. You know, and the investors, too, because you have an awesome audience. There's no better audience than a festival audience. And, you know, people are paying to see your movie. So it does mean something, but it's not really. Yeah, you know, if you had a choice between going to AFM or Cannes or Berlin uh, or going, you know, your movie going and trying to find a distributor versus going to a festival, I'd say the markets are hands down a better option. Yeah, yeah just to. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I was gonna say, just, just to kind of piggyback on that a little bit, you know. You know, to Tom's point, so, I, I mean, I would recommend to a filmmaker that they parallel process. You know, unless you've got something that has premier cast, you're, you're, you know, you're into Sundance already, you know, you know you're going to that, you know that there's like a real formidable festival run in your future, I, I wouldn't sit there and hold back on distribution conversations and see how things go in the festival. I would parallel process. But, but festivals can be helpful, not just kind of, to Tom's point, you know, they're, they have minimal value in terms of your end audience other than they know they're, you know, that, you know okay, some people like this out there. What it does um, for our purposes is it helps open doors or it helps start the conversation with the buyer. They at least understand, okay, this has been seen by a handful of folks at festivals. It's been received well. It's a quality project I should at least take a look at. I mean, I've got, you know, one example is a movie that we have called Girl Flu that we're getting ready to release um, later this month. You know, Girl Flu has got a nice cast in it led by Katie Sackhoff from Battlestar Galactica. You know, hmm. she has a number of great fans. It, it, from a genre perspective, it kind of sits in between. It's kind of a comedy drama. It's got kind of that Little Miss Sunshine kind of feel to it. So it's not a home run from a genre perspective. But every place that it plays, it's gone through a handful of festivals, it keeps winning. And so what that does is it gives credibility to the quality of the story and the project 
um, and it helps our conversations with buyers. Um, another op another kind of example is, you know, I mentioned accolades. So we have a, a picture called um, "Dropping the Soap." The star of that, Jane uh, Jane Lynch, she just she just uh, won the Emmy for that. So that's a kind of a great feather in the cap for that film. It helps us with conversations with the buyers, and it helps finesse those conversations forward towards a sale. Yeah, no, I, I definitely like that. It gives kind of ammunition for you guys to be able to open a dialogue to talk about the particular film uh, with that. So, um, so let me. Tom had mentioned about you know should you go to the market and try to find a distributor or you know take the time and do the festival route. That finding a uh, distributor slash you know agent. It. I talked to several filmmakers and they seem at times that it's difficult to find them. And I'm like, you know, they're not hiding, right? You yeah. don't want to be found. It's not like, you know, people are hiding. How do people find agents or, or distributors? Is there, is there a place that you guys could recommend of people going? Um, uh, go I, ahead, Michelle. Go that? ahead, Michelle. Yeah. Um, I, I'm only stepping on in that just because I, I've given lectures on this in particular. So, most definitely sales companies are not hiding. However, there there is a right time for uh, filmmakers to come and meet uh, a sales agent. And hmm. I, I actually started in distribution because I was the filmmaker going to meet with sales agents. I used to pay my way to go to Cannes and I would try to sell my film as a producer. And I learned that there is a time. So when you have a a film uh, market, and let's just say it's eight days to 12 days, can versus AFM, they're pretty long. The first four or five days, those are the days that the sales companies are uh, presenting the films they've already acquired to the buyers. These are very important days for the, the sales agent. And so they have to focus 1000% on just that. As the film market starts to wind down and now you're about halfway through, then that's when we are so happy to meet with the filmmakers to see what you have or what are you looking to make. And so when I start making my appointments for each market, the first half of the market are just for my buyers. And the second half of the market are for filmmakers. And that's where, and actually, for AFM, which is coming up in November, uh, I'm sure uh, John Wolf already mentioned it, but even when you buy your badge, you can buy your badge for just the second half of the market, which is really intended for the filmmaker because mm -hmm. there's no reason for a filmmaker to spend $1,000 on a badge and come on day one, two, or three, unless they just want to walk around and they, they want to invest in that. It, you, know, to, you, you can walk around on so many floors of, of the AFM without a badge, but... You want to you want to go into this of you know let's just take AFM to, to keep this simple. You want to go there on the first day. You want to get your book that is provided for free by the AFM, and uh, they they provide many expensive magazines. In fact, Screen International, all of those are thirty dollars and so and and they're all free for filmmakers. You go sit down, get a cup of coffee, and you start seeing the sales companies that have similar films to what you are looking to either make or you have made. And then you start to email them 
and say, I'd like to set up an appointment to meet with you on day six or day seven. That's when my badge is, is uh, good for. And I am so happy to meet those filmmakers because I need to acquire a film for the next market. Sure. Once we start selling all, all these films in this market, I need, I'm going to need to bring something to Glasshouse that we have it at the next one, which would be Sundance or Berlin, whatever it may be. And so we are looking for you filmmakers out there. I was that filmmaker. I still am that filmmaker. So we're definitely not hiding, but there is a right place and a right time. And I always know the newer filmmakers versus a little bit more of the versed filmmakers when they say, oh, can I, you know, the AFM starts on November 1st. Can I meet you November 1st at 10 a.m.? I'm so sorry, no, or they don't even hear back from me right away. And that's where those filmmakers give you that feeling, uh, Ron, of, oh, they, we act as if we don't want to be found. No, it's just that we are focusing on selling a filmmaker's film right now. So I have to give that time to them because they worked really hard to find us or I worked really hard to find their film. Yeah. Yeah. So the, do you like to get contacted by filmmakers before a market? I, personally, yes. I if I can do that, it's just it's a little bit easier. I right now uh, today we're in mid September. I already have um, a handful of emails from filmmakers who know AFM is coming up. They either are flying out here or they live out here in LA. And even if they live out here in LA, they just know it's going to be easier to go to that particular film market in Los Angeles and meet with me. And so they were asking him, you know, we meet and I say, yeah, you're, do you have a completed film or what do you have? No problem. Let's meet on day five of the market. And we're more than happy to meet them. If they email me during the market, that's also perfectly fine. I understand that because a lot of the filmmakers don't know anything about the sales companies yet until they actually get there hmm. uh, to the AFM on day one, day two, day three. They get the book. They start seeing the list of sales companies that are attending the market. And then that's when they uh, either email or call me. And I, I'm always more than happy. I think last AFM I counted, I took 87 filmmaker meetings, 87. Wow, nice. I, I think I lost my voice by the end. Mm -hmm. um, however, I, I have to throw this in because I, I know the audience that it, that's listening to this right now. A handful, a big handful of the, the films that I would be presented were, you know, two-hour dramas with their best friend and their mom in it. And they have this completed film, and they might have 15 laurels from the Alcove Film Festival and the, you know, <laughs> Chair Film Festival, whatever. And it's like unknown film festivals, family, friends, you know, and, and I know it's not easy to make a movie. I, I mean, I've made about 10 movies. I know how hard it is to conceive this baby, and it is not easy, but... At the same time, with all sincerity to that filmmaker who's presenting me such a product, there is nothing I am really able to do for that type of film because I already know how the buyers are going to respond. So it's not that I'm hiding. It's not that I don't like your film. I just don't know if I could provide the sales that you're looking to have. And if you, if you the filmmaker, have big expectations you know, I've, I've kind of made a joke about this. Tom was very aware of it, but if you bring a film like that, you know, and it's two hours long and no cast, it's your best friend and your mom and whoever, and you have 15 laurels from the Alco film festival. And then I say, okay, well, what's your budget? Uh, oh, 1.5 million. Okay. There is just nothing I could do with that. You know, if you said this was 20,000, I could say, oh, okay, maybe I could do something, you know, but yeah. it, it makes it hard. And if I see that 
I'm being asked to do the impossible. I have to be fair to the company I work for as well and to that filmmaker and say, you know what, I may have to just pass on this one. I apologize. And out of 87 meetings I had last year, um, a good handful were the case. And But but at the same time, Ron, for, for those listeners right now, that was part of also the learning experience for them. It, it cost them whatever it cost them to make that movie, but they also went through this learning curve. And now a handful of those filmmakers are still contacting me. Mm-hmm. They kind of push that film to the side. They're making their next film. They've put together about $100,000, and now they're emailing me, hey, Michelle, would this actor from this TV show, Glee, um, you know, have some value on a $100,000 film? And I could say, you know what? Actually, yeah, that, that makes sense. And now they're going into their next film with a little bit more knowledge on how to go about it. And, and it's great. So they've already created the relationship and it may have taken an unfortunate project to get them there, but we all kind of go through that in life, right? <laughs> so it's not that much of a bad thing either. Yeah, no, you gotta, you gotta learn from it for, for sure to, to be able to advance to that next, next thing. We, we have to make as filmmakers make sellable products. It, you know, it can't be a vanity project. It can't be a project that, uh, uh, you know, that, it, you're just all your hopes and dreams not rely on it, and yet you didn't do anything to kind of add up to make it sellable. That's that entrepreneurial spirit. You have to look through it from the lens of, uh, and this is what I want the audience to hear of uh, someone trying to sell it. So, in sticking with sales, how are pre-sales these days? Are they? It sounds like from the murmurings we hear that they pretty much are gone away. Is that is that the case, or they just have gotten harder? Um, people are kind of buckled down more. Yeah, you know, I'd say it's 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 very hard. It's I I'd say it's close to the edge of going away unless there's a big star. You know, I mentioned Matthew McConaughey before. You know, if you did Dallas Buyers Club, which is you know you're talking three to five million dollars, that's the type of movie that needs an A-list star like that. And if you have that, you'll get pre-sales on that movie. I mean, that's just you know, and also with a, a reputable sales company, you know, if, if Voltage Pictures is selling Dallas Buyers Club, they're going to pre-sale the hell out of that movie. You know, so it's doable. Um, it's just it's really cast and reputation of the company. Yeah, uh, if I can interject on that, uh, from what Tom is saying, it, it, that is super important. And I have a lot of um, filmmakers who do ask me about pre-sales because they want to help complete the, the financing. And that's really their reason for the pre-sales. But this morning, I had a call with a pretty prominent producer, and um, he was telling me about his other project. And he already has 700000 in pre-sales, but he also has... Um, Keanu Reeves attached hmm. and it's also a, a, a likable budget so they also know him as a producer so it, it was easier in that sense with like what Tom is saying you know with that caliber of, a, of an actor you know 700,000 is, is pretty fair but but a lot of the filmmakers who come to us with the pre-sales question they're they're not there yet the pre-sales are really for the competing films competing actors and unless they have that Keanu Reeves type or the Matthew McConaughey type that's really the only time pre-sales could be talked about but but it is fading out a little bit more it's not like it used to be for sure yeah Yeah. Yeah. I'll just uh, jump in a little bit um you know the the landscape has changed over the years and, and we've seen studios going away from kind of the moderate budget level releases and focusing on their tentpole releases in terms of what they're financing. That said, they still have a certain number of slots to fill. And so that's kind of where 
a lot of the indie finance model um, kind of grew and expanded was these films that are in kind of the 15, 20, 25 million dollar range being financed independently. For films like that who are going to command, you know, a good cast, those are the ones that are still doing pre-sales. Um, you know, to the points that they, they alluded to earlier, you know, they're going to have cast names, they're going to have a genre, they're going to know where it fits in the marketplace, and they're probably going to be uh, at the market with one of a handful of the top tier sales agents who can actually generate pre-sales and the filmmaker can take those pre-sales and actually go bank them and make them part of their actual production financing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we, we hear that, uh, you know, hear that a lot, but then the practicality of it or actually seeing people find that success, I think that's right on is that the people that are doing it kind of know how to, how to do it. And if you're going to kind of take that on, you need to follow, follow the models that are actually uh, working with that. Um, you know, with, with international, it just five years ago, it was a, a, a portion of sales, a smaller portion of sales. Now I've, I've read it's 60% of sales are now international opportunities. We all hear of China and every filmmaker out there, I think is trying to be like, how can I either a get on Netflix or B uh, partner up with a Chinese uh, producer, you know, are there co-production opportunities that you all are starting to see from an international point of view? Well, I I don't know. You know, there's been, there's been a lot of, um, action, I would say, with China um, involvement in things, but you know that that's a tough thing. I mean, you know, it's like China. You look and you see a lot of action involved, but they're doing the action with Spielberg and monster companies and everything. Um, it, you know, I think that there's international financing is available. Movie is as just as much as domestic financing. I, I would say there's no. Uh, you know, wealth of it more than the, you know, the domestic financing. I don't find that at all. I mean, we found, like, let's put it this way, in Cannes, the the country we had the most meetings with was China. I mean, we might have had six or seven different China buyers Hmm. looking at our movies. So they were buying from us, but they weren't financing up front. So, you know, it's it's tough to answer that. Financing, obviously, is a big, um, you know, is a big, is a big Pandora's box to open that all and talk, you know, in detail about that, but uh, I wouldn't say there's any, you know, like there's a country where, oh yeah, they're just funding stuff left and right. I haven't found that country yet. <laughs> Man, I was hoping you'd say yes, and I was gonna <laughs> hop on the phone, and then so- uh, Yemen. Actually, <laughs> Yemen has a fund, and all you got to do is just have a good script, and uh, no. Yeah, there it is. Boom. Um, you know, so it it does seem that I'm also finding where a lot of sales agents and uh, the like where at one point they were really, really hyper-focused on just sales and, and not often did they dip into production. And yet it seems in 2017 that a lot of them now are doing a little bit of both. They're kind of dabbling in both. Do you guys, do you guys find that? And if so, um, if you could speak a little bit generically about how that might work, not necessarily uh, with Glasshouse in particular, because I don't want to I kind of corner you guys, but but how does that or how would an uh, indie filmmaker kind of go out and try to find that right 
joint venture producing partner type? Go ahead, guys. One of you two take it. <laughs> um, I, I, I could I could step in on that one. Um, and the only reason why I say that is because for for many years I um, participated in the producers network in Cannes, and so in Cannes they they really have a nice program for the producers when you you have a, a scheduled breakfast every morning and you meet with other filmmakers, you know, pretty much at your level and you're sitting with good sized companies. I mean, I've sat with Weinstein's company, um, Lionsgate, uh, Voltage, I mean, to name a few when I was still, you know, growing uh, into distribution. And through that, I would meet especially can I would meet so many co-productions from Italy, from Germany, uh, from the Middle East. I mean, it was just one thing and another, to another that we, we would work to collaborate. And, you know, some of my financing on some of my films came from other parts of the world. And, you know, that's what started teaching me more about the tax credits in other parts of the world and how I could benefit. And it just, it, it organically, it just kind of evolves into you know, all these new possibilities. So for me personally, I was able to benefit from this because I flew myself out to Cannes and I would do this. I wasn't, I wasn't waiting to win something with a film and then be flown out to Cannes. And I know that's not something everybody can do. I was really determined. I would save my money every year and then I would buy a flight, get a, you know, hotel. And I mean, there's four of us in one room, whatever it took, and it started off with a short film corner, whatever it took, I, I got myself to be at the right place at the right time as often as possible. Yeah. And in your career, you know, that, and really, yeah. and that's the way people don't look at it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it helps so much. And that doesn't mean that's the, you know, if, if you live in the U.S., try to go to AFM or Sundance. You know, if you live in Europe or other parts of the world, try to go to Cannes. You know, it, it, you're putting yourself at the right place at the right time the best you can. You know, one of the questions, you know, is it best to just move to Los Angeles? Yeah. But if you really think about it, what you're trying to do is put yourself at the right place at the right time. The film festivals and the markets are as best as you can get, you know, just you can't get any better than that because now you have everybody else who's doing right. what you're doing and you have other people with money who's looking to invest in films yeah. and it, it's just amazing how uh, you guys can meet the right people and, and and make great stuff and it happens all the time. I mean, if you look at the result after AFM, they give you a, a um, all the stats of how many deals were done, how many productions were you know put together and, and contracts were signed and it's amazing. It's so impressive. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, no, it sounds like you're saying definitely go where the action is um, kind of in, in all ways. And that includes, uh, in particular in the U.S., uh, the markets. And that's the way you're going to meet other producers to have that co-production potential opportunity. It's not going to come find you for sure. Yeah. Um, so when you have – when a filmmaker is looking at a deal, because uh, that's another question I, I hear often is can you kind of help me um, figure out what, what does A, a typical deal – kind of look like what are some of the elements within a typical deal and then with a follow-up of what potential pitfalls should filmmakers kind of look out for 
Are you are you referring to the the production of a film and financing a film? No. So so let's say oh, distribution I, deal. Exactly. You get a distribution, distribution deal. deal. Yep. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm yep. sorry. Well, you know, look at not to not to toot the horn of our company, but there's things that I feel we do that other film uh, other companies don't. Like we have something that uh, I insisted in the contract right away, which was to have a clause that we have minimums that we have to make for your movie. Hmm. And if we don't hit those minimums, you get the rights back. And hmm. really, I, we put that in purposely because two reasons. Like, one, we don't want to take your you know, your film and put it on a shelf and say, oh, well, you signed the contract, you're screwed. And the second part is we don't want to have a movie that we can't sell. You know, if we can't sell it, I'd rather you have it and take it to somebody who could. Um, so there's something that I feel... That, you know that it should be in a lot of contracts, but most distributors yeah. don't have the kind of guts to put that in there. So, you know, it, I'd say if you're any deal that's going to come out to you, then you're going to get an offer on the table. You're going to look for that MG first. But no matter what, I would say uh, is to try to get uh, talk to filmmakers who've worked with them in the past. There's nothing beats that, and I don't mean asking the distributor to give you references because that's the dumbest. I mean, you're, they're they're not going to give you the people that hate them. Clearly, you know, <laughs> they're going to give you the people that love them. So I would just go on IMDb um, and or Sonando, which is kind of more popular now, and and you know, as far as the industry goes. And find out what other movies they've done. Look up the filmmakers and contact them. And trust me, they will be happy to tell you if they've had a bad experience with the company, and happy to tell you if they've had a good experience. You know, yeah. just, I'd say do that. Talk to two or three films and say, "What has your, been your experience with them?" And that's the best way you can qualify uh, doing a deal with a company. No, I love that. I think that's truly looking from through a lens of an indie filmmaker is um, if allowing the filmmaker to understand if you guys don't hit a minimum, then they default and get the project back. Cause that isn't that the fear of every filmmaker that once they sign it, they sign the life of their whole film over for like 15 yep. years. And, and it's on you know, a shelf. Yeah. yeah. I mean, unfortunately yep. I've seen those deals, you know, come at me and, and, and you have to, you know, kind of talk them down a little bit. And I love the idea of references. I, I did that as well, just on a whim. I didn't really realize I should have done it. I did it. And it, I was shocked at what the producers were. A, they were willing to pick up the phone. N no one mm -hmm. turned me down. They were like, yeah, I'll talk to you. And yeah. they were very, very direct. You know, I had one yeah. that said, oh, they're nice people, but I haven't seen a dime. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, there's truth. Um, yeah. You know, you have MGs. You mentioned MGs, the minimum guarantee. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something that you guys are still seeing and, and, and how would you advise a filmmaker if, let's say, you had a domestic distributor come to you and say, hey, all right, we'll give a 10 grand minimum guarantee here. How, how would you advise that? And are you guys still seeing MGs? Well, if we're seeing them, then that means that's us from the filmmaker side, you know, and, and they are getting uh, fewer and farther between, you know, uh, on the films. But um, we're also, we also have given uh, them to, you know, a couple of the films that we give it. That's kind of a new territory for us because we're a growing company. But, you know, it's, it, they're, they're starting to go away. You know, I, what would you look for in an MG? I mean, look, at if uh, there's the old adage that your filmmaker only gets paid once, you know, and that's what you want to watch out for. I've gotten the big MGs back when there were big MGs and that was it. That's all you got was that MG. You know, mm -hmm. they, they ne it never, they found a way in the accounting uh, to never kind of uh, come back from that MG. So, um, you know, if it's something, I, I'm a fan of it if you can get it because then they have stake in the game. You know what I yeah. mean? They have skin in the game, like meaning yep. they've invested in your movie. If you say, well, nah, forget the MG, just start giving me a percentage right away. 
well, then you could be in trouble because then, you know, they, they never actually committed to you uh, financially. So. And uh, I would also just say that if you do get an MG or you're in a conversation or a negotiation for an MG, you know, just make sure you take a look at the um, recoupable expenses and deductions and make sure that those things are capped so that, you know, you're not getting a promise of a certain amount, but they're going to they're going to get you another way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I, it, it, that's definitely a good word. So for filmmakers, us indie filmmakers, you know, it, it, you only need to be around the industry for a little bit in the indie scene to hear the chatter about Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. You know, everybody's talking about that to the point of like ad nauseum, like, oh yeah, this is where I'm going to get my, my new show, you know, on. And they haven't even <laughs> ma- opened the conversation with Netflix yet. And they're already filming. So I already know that, you know, alert, alert has not happened. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, talk to me a little bit and, and maybe speak to the filmmakers out there. Give them an honest lens of the Netflix, Hulu, uh, Amazon uh, kind of conversation here. Are they kind of the, you know, the golden ticket for, for filmmakers out here? Or are we finding that they are or at least have become just another distributor and there's a way to do it. And it is, they've kind of defaulted into a more um, traditional sense of distribution. Any thoughts with those? Um, You guys, anybody want to take that or you want me to go? What do you want to do? (laughs) Go ahead, Tom. I don't want to jump in each time. You know, I think that with the key with um, any of those is you're going to need relationships um, Netflix is and Amazon both highly publicize all their deals, you know, and mm-hmm. notice that those are with established gigantic filmmakers. You know, we've sold to Netflix um, and those acquisitions have been low, 25 grand type things, you know, mm-hmm. non-exclusive deals. Um, and so it's when Netflix is funding something that it's a little better, but they're looking for established people, you know, um, Amazon. I've got a show on Amazon, two shows on Amazon that are um, TV and then a bunch of our movies are up there and they changed their pay structure, which, which complete, I mean, I calculated for one of the shows, we were getting one tenth of what we were before the pay structure changed. Um, So, I mean, you know, look, they, they both have money, um, but again, they're highly publicizing the projects that they're doing with big, you know, uh, big companies, big names, big talent. Uh, so I would just say, you know, it's best if you're going to make an independent film, it, you, you could have distributed relationships beforehand, you know, go to AFM, get all those relationships going and don't say, you know, that, that the equivalent of the Netflix, Amazon, what you're saying used to be, Oh, I'm going to make a movie and I'm going to get into Sundance. That was what they used to say 10 years right. ago, you know, and I'm going to get the deal. Right. And that's, that's basically the version of it today is I'm going to get the Netflix, Amazon deal. So I don't think it's as easy as they're portraying. <laughs> yeah, no, it. no, definitely. And in fact, I keep, you know, again, I keep hearing people kind of say that. And yet I know, I think one person that got a, an actual Netflix original because getting on their platform is one thing. You know, yeah. but I know that's not what they mean. They're talking about, you know, getting paid or Netflix paying for their show or their film, which is just the likelihood yeah. is just good. You're in the clouds a little bit. And, um, and those deals are typically complete buyouts. Like there's no right. um, kind of participation in the upside. It, it's like you're paid a certain quantum and that's that. Yeah, right, right. So here it is. And, and then the original content, it seems to me that they're definitely pinching that 
probably 90% of them on the front end. I mean, way before they go into pre-production and, and Netflix is going to, you know, not just partner with them to do production. They're, they're doing the production They're, um, you know, as you just said, Rob, they're, they're kind of taking the, the script idea, whatever it is, if it's becoming an exclusive or an original, then that totally changes the game. And the fact that you're going to have control over it and all that stuff is just, um, yeah, just, just not truth there. Um, so let me ask you, uh, you guys have been in the game at, for distributors for, for a period of time, but certainly as, as filmmakers yourselves for a long time. Speak to me from the lens of a distributor, but any advice from the filmmaking lens as well, is where do you see filmmakers blowing it? Or where do you see them that, man, you know, if you just come to me before you made the film or before you did that thing, then I could have helped you. Where are they blowing it or what mistakes are you seeing them making that you wish they would have come to you beforehand? Yeah. Um, Michelle, yeah, you see the most filmmakers, so please go for it. Yeah, I actually mentioned that this earlier, you know, I'll get a film that they've cast their friend or family member or whatever it may be because their friend's the aspiring actor but has nothing behind him except maybe extra work. And it's great and that's the risk that that filmmaker wanted to take, but it makes it very hard for me to do anything. So that I would say is considered blowing it. Uh, like I said, they come to me, they have a film two hours long. There's no one yeah. in it. The drama, which is the D word. And, um, yeah. and then they say, yeah, I spent, you know, a half a million dollars on it. It's like, okay, yeah. that's, that's, that's pretty much blowing it right there. And that's why I'm saying you, you can just consider that a learning experience because I don't know any sales company that can take that film and still pay their bills, their lights, and you know <laughs> all, all the things they need to pay for to keep running with a film like that in their library. So that would be blowing it, and that's why I say if if a filmmaker, um, for those listening right now, they're already a, a step ahead just by listening to podcasts like this because they can say, oh wait, let me go to whichever film festival or market is close to me, the next one that comes around, if they live in Kansas or they live in wherever they may live. If you're in New York, go to Tribeca. If you're on the West Coast, go to AFM. You know, whichever it may be, go to a film festival where you're surrounded and go to a market, especially if you can, and that way you start. Number one, what happens when you go to a market and you walk the floor, like AFM, for example, um, you see how many films come out hmm. and that's just that market. Yeah. So when you're making your all time almighty film that you feel, Oh my God, this is it. You then go to the film market and you, you become a bit humble because you say, wait, there, there's a couple thousand films per market coming out. Yeah. And that, that's it. That's, you know, a game changer in your whole, um, you know, going in on making that movie because then you realize, wait, I'm up against this movie here, and you're going to see Dolph Lundgren on the poster of about three films. You'll definitely see Michael Madsen, Eric Roberts. You see kind of the same faces, and you know you're going to see all these different, you know, Pamela Andersons in this movie that you wouldn't see in a theater, but she's in this, you know, smaller, lower budget film, and so you're competing up against that. And when you when you see those, you you realize, okay, wait, let me do my homework a little bit, and um, then go into it. And, you know, one of the filmmakers that really impressed me was, you know, he made his first film, but he did his homework. Mm -hmm. And he went, he cast one of the actors from 
Oh, it was a CW show, I think, that the originals or something like that. So he was just one of the, you know, one of the characters, a regular character on the show. So it's not a name that you would know. But when I say, when if I want to sell that film, I could say, yeah, we have the actor from CW, the originals, which that right. show, it plays worldwide. So that right there, and, and he made it for, I think, $250,000. Nice. And it was a, it's a boxing movie. So I said, okay, this all makes sense. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to go crazy. He didn't have to go get Matthew McConaughey or Keanu Reeves. He got an actor who was not hugely known, but he has a great credit behind him. And he made a good, you know, genre boxing, you know, with the story behind it. And that made sense. And that was his first film. And nice. that that is him not blowing it. And maybe he's not going to, you know, become huge after this one film, but he's now going in the very right direction, which I, you know, I was so happy to see that. Because it's not that often we see that. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of us indies have kind of this tendency to talk amongst ourselves of like, oh, star star power is dead. You don't need star power. And and it's because I I believe that we ourselves can put our films directly up on, you know, on the interwebs and use an aggregator and all that stuff. But as 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 Tom alluded to earlier, and you just said now, Michelle, that it, it's not about that. It's about selling, and in particularly selling internationally. And when international 60% of the market is coming from international sales, of, of which star power still matters, then it should matter to you, the filmmaker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, what is the single most important thing you would tell an aspiring filmmaker? Any words of wisdom? I, I, I'll, I'll say, um, I mean, Rob, you can chime in any time, but I, I would say just listening to this podcast and following steps like this, you, you are so far ahead of the game because there are going to be many films that are made that don't have any of this applied, anything that we just talked about. And so I would say a good, um, I would say probably 80% of my filmmaking meetings will not even be competitive and yeah and so just them knowing even some of this information they're already a, a step ahead and that, that's a big big plus you know just educating yourself as much as you can i was able to do it um by flying myself out to film festivals i i had another job at the time and so i would save my money and i would go to these film festivals and i didn't really even realize I was doing it with the goal that I achieved, but I was doing it because I was really interested and I just really enjoyed it. And, you know, film festivals are also fun. I mean, the cocktail party, yeah, sure. the events, I mean, you're, you know, you're rubbing shoulders with Quentin Tarantino and all these guys and the people that I've met, you know, it's just great because now if I ever see them again, I can say, Oh yeah, I yeah. Met you, you know, back then, even though they don't know who I am, but right um, no. Definitely, you I know, love it. it's such a great uh, feeling to be able to say that, and and uh, I've walked on red carpets with you know some of my favorite actors. So now, if I run into them in L.A., which I have, I could say, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Colin Farrell. I mean, I see him at Starbucks regularly. It's like, yeah, nice. I walked the red carpet on your Sofia Coppola film in Cannes. That's a great thing. So you're you really get to invest in your career um, in doing that, and and I know this is not something where everybody that's listening can do. Um, 
that's my toddler in the back. I apologize. Oh, that's but, a, that, hey, look, that's the filmmaking entrepreneurial right there. That you know, we all we're yeah. we're, we're multitasking. So no, you can yeah, march well, on. He, he, yeah, he's he's definitely a, a experienced. He's already attending all the markets. But yeah, I know not everyone can. Uh, for for those listening who can't attend a film market, there are other ways. Um, one of the the ways, but it, it's reading certain books or um, you know wa- watching certain you know documentaries or think you know there's so many different ways i I'm, I'm, i think my mind just got cluttered trying to think of all the ways that I'm yeah no out. that it, that that those are actually great points i mean that you you're you michelle and rob how about any can you think of any books or as you said documentaries that filmmakers you know it's like man i wish somebody would told me to have read you know or saw this documentary um you know i'm thinking I, I, of a Keanu Reeves documentary that he did about uh, kind of the death of of film. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the name of it, but then uh, you know Tom's book actually, uh, yeah, bank, bankroll. Bank, bankroll your film, yeah, bankroll uh, really helped me out from a financing point of view. So uh, any any books or documentaries that you guys could recommend? I, I was, per, I mean, I was just going to say bankroll and, um, there's filmmaking for dummies by, uh, you know, the dummies series, sure. there's filmmaking for dummies by, uh, Brian Michael Stoller. I, I happen to work with him, um, on a film. He was, he was a director on a film that I co-produced and, um, he wrote filmmaking for dummies, which he has a lot of experience. Great book. Um, I personally like bankroll. I, I actually read bankroll before I knew Tom and, what I like about that is that it's an easy read and it really helps you in not just getting your financing, but how to go about, you know, creating a business plan, a simple business plan, um, you know, what to look for. And then it talks about, you know, even how to a business, it even talks about making business cards, how to present yourself, how to write your biography on your IMDB or your website. And, all these simple little tools that cost little to nothing that people actually don't always know. And when I read his book, I was already about three or four features in as a producer. And I said, wow, this, this person really is making all these, these great points that should be out there. And the book, I mean, I read it in, I think a day and a half. It was such an easy read. So again, bankroll by Tom Loy, there's a second edition. I would definitely get that. Um, you know, th- those of you who go to film school, I'm sure you guys have heard, you know, other books you can read. I- I've read a handful of books. I can't even cite them right now, but, you know, you know, how to make a short film, simple books. And they-, they do help. There's so many out there, but they do, they do help. You don't have to read the extended, you know, encyclopedia version of these. You know, it- this is one, one thing I-, I do try to tell people is that getting into this, this, even though people do make a living off of this, it, it is very much a business, but it is very much a dream. And there is a romance to this industry that brings us all in. And we, uh, many of us will take a lot less of an income that we normally can make just because we want to be in this business. So it's a lot more motivating for us to educate ourselves and, and learn the business side of it, not just the creative, but the business side of it. Yeah. And you will, when you get yourself well-rounded, you really can make a career out of it. And, you know, next thing you know, you've been in this business for 10 years and this has been your only job. 
and that's that's a success story in Hollywood, really. Yeah, no, it is. Well, I mean, one of my one of my little comments was, um, you know, longevity. I mean, this industry isn't really known for that. I mean, I would also include in in well rounding yourself, you know, a great marketing book, uh, a good business book, you know, stuff even outside of of the industry. Rob, you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, I mean, I concur with everything Michelle said. Michelle, I hope uh, Tom's check to you is in the mail um, for his uh, <laughs> book. And uh, I think other than that, I think you know, to the extent that, you know, just to borrow a phrase that Michelle said earlier, do your homework. You know, don't just focus on the creative. Don't just focus on this amazing film you're going to do. See the end goal. Look at other projects that are made out there that are similar to yours. You know, what kind of distribution, what kind of release are they getting? What kind of promotions are they doing? How are they putting that together? Try to create the complete plan for your project from A to Z and start having those conversations now. You know, yeah. when you connect with sales agents, when you connect with distributors, tell them about those projects, even if you're not even in pre-pro yet. Make them aware of them. Start to build your team and your partners and and don't shoot yourself in the foot you know obviously cast is important but not just having cast you know creating marketing obligations from some of your key cast in your contracts yeah um getting you know doing doing your epks getting those interviews while you're on set so you don't have to go back and chase for them later have those materials done so when you have conversations with folks like us or distributors You've got already, you know, you've got your trailer, you've got your poster, you've got your interviews, you've got your other materials. It, it helps us do our job and it helps us, uh, you know, make your film all the more successful. Yeah, no, I, I love that thought of you saying, like, get your partners together and you guys seeing yourself as a partner. So let's parlay into that. Where, where can people find you and support you? And let me just say, as I was looking through your library, um, you got my buddy's film, Alex, uh, our good friend of the podcast from Indie Film Hustle, uh, the film This Is Meg. So oh, super, yeah. super excited about that one. Let's get some sales for that one. Let's let's bring that one to the top of the list. Uh, so good, good friend there. But tell us how can people uh, find you all that, that maybe want to make inquiries and find that right uh, strategic partner? Uh, I could chime in on that one. Um, I mean, we, we do have a website, obviously, the glasshousedistribution.com website. Uh, you can find us on IMDb. Um, our emails are pretty simple. It's our first name at glasshousedistribution.com. Uh, same with all the sales companies. Sonando is another good one if people subscribe to Sonando. Uh, but IMDb is usually a good source for the, the filmmakers out there and the websites. And I mean, that's how I started contacting sales companies. I would go to their websites directly. And, um, you know, we, we're not hiding. Like you said, we're yeah. not hiding. Yeah. We're definitely accessible. Um, God, I, I sometimes I have random people calling me that I've never even met. And I think, oh, God, I guess I really have my number out there, maybe a little bit too much. But, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, we're, we're there. We're available because we, we need you guys. We need you filmmakers. We need those yeah. films. And so um, one of the hardest parts of my job is acquisitions. It seems yeah, like it's sure. fun, but we have to go through, in today's time, um, we have to go through 10 haystacks for that needle. Yeah, Whereas that, back in the day where it was very limited on who can make a film, it was just one haystack to find that needle. And 
you know, in today's world, there is no license to drive. Anyone can make a film. Anyone could take their iPhone, shoot it, edit it on iMovie, and now they're the actor, producer, editor, caterer. They're all the right. above. They post it on IMDb, and now they're a filmmaker, and then they yeah. come to me and want to sell their film and that's part of that haystack that I have to push aside to try to find the needle so I am looking for you guys out there if you if you're making your films that makes sense you know with yeah. the right budget to the right cast if you're a first director it's great it's okay a lot of people think like oh god like people don't like first-time directors very untrue we love first-time directors we we like all of it but if you're gonna have you know, um, if you want to put your best friend and your grandmother in it, put a lead actor in there and then have your best friend and grandmother as a second or third position. It's right. okay. You can do all those things you want to do, but make it make sense. Would you want to buy that film from someone you don't know? Yeah, make it sellable. Say? For yeah, sake. if yeah. it costs a dollar ninety nine on your iPhone and you're going through, you know, Amazon, do you want to pay for that? So yeah. you have to think of it through that lens, as you were saying, Ron. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, they. In, in the 80s, we had a 20-minute attention span. In today's times, nine seconds. Nine seconds. So is this something that's going to capture somebody and make them hit the buy now button? I mean, that's the yeah. reality of the world we live in. And just because we're artistes, there's no sympathy there. We got to make it sellable. We're entrepreneurs as well as filmmakers. Uh, so there's a, a little bit of both. Can you guys give me some, just a real quick as we as we wrap this up, is there a particular genre that you're hearing um, from buyers that you wish you had more of in your library? Sci-fi. <laughs> Sci-fi, yes. Bye. See, and does that include fantasy? Because let me tell you why. I have a studio, um, and that's what we focus on. We focus on fantasy and sci-fi. So, is is when you say sci-fi, is that is the is fantasy a subgenre in your mind, or is fantasy a different thing? I, I don't come across fantasy. Um, that often for me to be sincere about their reply they say sci-fi so I, I don't know we can always try that out we can ask them especially with the next market coming up but sci-fi is what i i you get asked about by yeah. by specifically yeah. um action is always good horror there's a lot of that so be selective Right. Um, drama, avoid it unless you're friends with Matthew McConaughey and he's going to be in it. Avoid it. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. You know? I, I would yeah. say uh, also family. There seems to be quite a quite an appetite still for huh. family, especially in some oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I've heard that. I, I read that. Yeah, there's still kind of that, you know, you need your Christmas movie. You need your, you know, family-friendly movie. You, there's there's Those genres are, are still kind of playing that, that uh, you know, that – the star power still matters, but the genre specifically is what, is what they're looking for. Well, you guys have been most generous with your time. I really am thankful and grateful that you guys hopped on the podcast. I think distribution is such a huge, just crazy monster that we have to get right even before we begin to go down range on a film. So uh, I'm really excited about getting this information out to film troopers out there. Um, Again, thank you so much. I'm looking forward our to, to our uh, people just listening to this, devouring it, and then hopefully making some meetings with you guys at AFM and getting out there and, and seeing you. So if anybody does that, make sure that you let them know that you, you heard them on the Film Trooper podcast. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Film Trooper, empowering filmmaking entrepreneurs. 